The secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on finding the old, but building on the new. And I, and that to me is innovation. Innovation is any improvement that helps unlock progress for the users and customers or something. And it says they define progress. We're not going to effectively prepare our young people for 21st century if technology is not integrated. Aprendimiento, education, colaboración, collaboration. Every girl and every boy who the city on the boy deserves the doctor. Thanks for joining me this special edition of In Piazza. In addition to my expert guests, I'm joined this week by the second cohort of educators who are participating virtually in their coaching activities as part of the YAS Prize Accelerator. YAS, Y-A-S-S, prize.org, in case you're not familiar with it yet, and I'd urge you to go there right now and learn more about it. But please be sure to stick around after I've talked to these uh, amazing innovators to hear their questions and check out their work and the entire project. First author Michael Horn is with us. He's a renowned and trusted voice within the education opportunity community in ed tech and sought out by entrepreneurs everywhere. He speaks and writes about the future of education and works with a portfolio of education organizations to improve the life of each and every student. I'll say a little bit more about Michael in a few minutes. Phyllis Lockett is the founder and CEO of Leap Innovations and a serial social entrepreneur who has led transformational efforts in education, government, and the civic arena. Both are on the cutting edge of learning innovations and are uniquely well-poised to speak to the group who are competing in a chance for a $1 million prize for their education efforts. Altogether, the 64 YAS Prize semi and quarter finalists will have received over $10 million uh, by the time this competition is over. It's extraordinary. Uh, but today, uh, Phyllis and Michael are joining me to talk directly with the 32 um, and the rest of the applicants are watching nearby. Take a listen. In La Piazza. Good morning, everyone. It's time to talk innovation. Happy Thursday, November 3rd. I'm Jeannie Allen. For those of you who have not had the pleasure to meet, I run the Center for Education Reform and the Yas Foundation for Education, um, which hosts the prize. So it's great to see the 32 and welcome to everybody else who is with us off screen. I am super excited for this conversation um, with two people I've known for a while who are just uh, super quality people and experts in what innovation even means. So let's talk about that and take your questions um, and help you guys parse through that and help us learn about it as well in, your, in the Q&A. So don't forget to use the Q&A if you have stuff you want me to make sure I ask. Um, so let's get started. Michael, Michael Horn, co-founder. Yeah, I know you guys have all this stuff, but I just want to highlight a few things. Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. He was a founder there. He's now a distinguished fellow. Check out their stuff. I remember reading Clayton stuff when I was in graduate school and thinking, wow, disruption, what a great idea. <laughs> That's what we should be doing in education. He kind of beat me to it. Um, as Michael does every day with his amazing podcasts and writings, um, Harvard Graduate School of Education adjunct professor, executive editor of Education Next. He writes everywhere um, and speaks and helps a lot of us parse through what's necessary to have a truly innovative uh, opportunity environment. Phyllis, CEO of Leap Innovations, education technology hub, connects Chicago educators with tech companies testing out many of the things that maybe some of you have participated or that you might try at some point in time. 
Before she started LEAP, I met Phyllis. She was um, the driving force behind Chicago's charter school movement. She founded new schools for Chicago, helped raise money for them, made sure that the mayor and the legislature and people who don't normally come together were all together for education um, opportunity and has uh, remained and continues to be a strong driving force as well for uh, education innovation writ large. So let me bring on my panelists now and we'll have a quick conversation and um, and we'll go from there. Hello, now I can see you guys. Hey, I'm Michael. Better. Hey, Phyllis, good to see you. Great to see you. So let me really quickly start with just, when did you guys meet and how did you meet? Because I think it's really important for people to, to have a sense of this network and this growing network that we have that we that we're bringing them into. My recollection, but Phyllis, you jump in. My my recollection is it was probably a year and a half or so after Disrupting Class was published, and I think probably Giselle Huff or someone connected us, Phyllis, and you sort of said like, "I've become convinced that we need to be innovating far more aggressively than we have so far. I want to turn on." software entrepreneurs with the school entrepreneurs and everyone and, and get them collaborating together. So we're just getting way more reps and actually studying this stuff. And like, how do, how do we do that? And, and I think that, that that's my first recollection of the conversation, but you may have a better one, Phyllis. Oh, I do. I, when was that? Uh, when did, when did disrupting class come out? Was that 10 or 10, 11 years ago? 2008. Okay. Wow. So around that time, and that's exactly right. But let me tell you an even better story. Um, you know, I built on that idea largely from, you know, Michael's leadership, Jeannie, yours as well. I mean, you know, you've been a trailblazer for all of us. So we just thank you so much for all you do um, for this YAS Prize and for creating this forum today. But um, Michael, so, so I, I decided I was going to launch Leap Innovations. Uh, this was about 10 years ago or so. And I invited Michael to come to uh, one of my form, one of my board members. <laughs> Before I even launched your um, uh, who actually was the CEO of Hyatt. Um, and he organized a large grouping of leaders in Chicago to talk about, first of all, for Michael to showcase disrupting class and for me to talk about the uh, launch and the potential for Leap Innovations. And um, it was it, it, that was a turnkey for, for me to even start Leap. So Michael was critical for, on, for, for, for me on my path toward, toward uh, this work. But the funniest sto uh, little story I have to share is that, you know, Michael, um, you know, shows up to, you know, to, uh, to his home and, um, you know, he's like, oh, you know, great. You know, where are you staying in Chicago? And Mike, Michael was like, oh, yeah, I got an Airbnb. Oh my gosh. Indeed. Oh, indeed. Oh I, rem I remember in that living room talking about how there had been no disruption in certain industries until there's a technology enabler. And then I looked sheepishly at him and I was like, so that's kind of Airbnb. And he was like, no, 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 it's right. You can keep talking. And I was like, okay, thank God. That was so <laughs> funny. And that was before Airbnb was a, like a big, what was that thing, right? This is like 10 years ago. So that, that, uh, that was a great one, Michael. I'll never forget that one. I just love that. And, and, you know, again, for, for the Oz Prize folks and everybody in the community that we're building, um, I have to say that one of my highlights is getting in a room with people like this, which you are now in that room, right? Because they're always doing something. You're always talking about something. You also don't feel embarrassed about saying, okay, explain to me again what that meant 
what you were doing. And Phyllis, remind me, and how does that work? And and also incredibly generous people. Not that I want you to start calling them and asking them for everything, but like, here's what I can do. And here's what's in my um, skill set, you know, and how can I help drive it? So that's what I love about this stuff that a lot of people on the outside don't quite understand. So I know this is sort of simple, simplistic, but let's start with the basics. What is innovation? I mean, define it for... I know it can be anything, right, in so many different places, but there's something about education innovation that does have certain qualities, right? Michael, let's start with you. Yeah, I, so I actually love the question because I think it's not basic at all. I think we all sort of implicitly nod when we hear the word innovation, but we never actually step back to say, what do we mean by it? And Jeannie, I've come very strongly to the view that innovation is any improvement that helps unlock progress for the users and customers of something. And it says they define progress. Uh, and, and if it's something new in that context, it doesn't have to be something we've never seen before. It could be like a school doing something it's never done before. If it unlocks progress for the demand side, that's innovation. Full stop. Love that. Phyllis, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, you know what, when, when I saw this question, I, I uh, came across a, a quote from Socrates, uh, the secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but building on the new. And I, and that to me is innovation, um, where, you know, it's this creative um, art and science of solving problems in new ways. You know, I ha I heard uh, a gentleman I worked with for a brief amount of time when I'd stepped out and was in Silicon Valley for a couple of years said to me, held a pencil up and said, you know, pencil can be innovation, just depends on how you use it. And that's really what both of you are saying. It's it's so so the conditions that you need for it, right? So so the folks here who are trying to grow and build an education-related effort, business, school, new kind of thing we don't even have a name for, right? How do you make sure that you are ready or that the conditions are ripe for that? What, what do they have to do themselves and what do other people have to do to bring those conditions in? Yeah, I, well, I'll jump in. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working um, with a lot of schools in, in Chicago and across the country, um, just thinking about how to, how to be innovative um, in a system that doesn't incent <laughs> uh, thinking or operating outside the box, right? So some of the conditions that I've seen is uh, first and foremost is um, uh, humility. <laughs> I just, at the, at the rawest form um, is the ability to self-reflect and be honest about the, the context you've been operating in and the courage to um, identify and, and, and talk about the gaps mm -hmm. and to make that okay, right? <laughs> um, I, I, that is so critically important. I know we spent a lot of time designing our work at LEAP to um, enable that that recognition to make it safe, right? To to you know talk about you know where where gaps are, um, and I think the the openness of collaboration, you know, to create to create collaborative spaces where um, others can feel safe to talk about some of the challenges, to share ideas, and to build build on ideas, but to also um, expand beyond your 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 ecosystem. To others, that's what I did with Michael as, as an example, to help uh, brainstorm and think about new things, right? And and I think it's also, um, you know, I call it grace, <laughs> and it's like creating a culture of grace 
that fosters um, the embracing of mistakes and and using mistakes uh, not not as not as um, uh, uh, punitive, but as as learning opportunities. I, I love that piece of it, Phyllis, because I, I was going to say we hear a lot about safe spaces in our culture today. To me, a safe space is one where I can walk out and try something and not get penalized for it. Uh, and 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 that's the kind of culture you want where we're embracing risk-taking on the pursuit to learning. And so the really cool organizations that innovate, I think, are great learning organizations, not for the students, just, you know, yes, for them, but the adults are actually modeling that constantly as they're going about their day-to-day -day as well. And I will tell you, <laughs> Kids, yes, they listen to what we say, but way more than like listening, they're watching what we do. Mm -hmm. They model what adults do. And if adults are learning and investing in that learning, then they'll do it as well, right? They'll, they'll, and, and so I, to me, that is the biggest hallmark. I, I, I love that answer, Phyllis, just because I think that's the biggest hallmark. If you're a learning organization, you are willing to be humble, say, we don't have all the answers. We're going to try something. We're going to learn from it. We're going to put a box around it so we actually learn. And we're going to celebrate the learning, not whether my idea was right or wrong, but the learning. That's the real hallmark, I think, of these organizations that, that, that keep pushing. And then the, you know, the, the part that follows on from that is just curiosity. Mm -hmm. Being able to ask those naive questions or that question that unlocks um, being curious, I think, is incredibly important, and then being willing to ask for help. Uh, it's something that I feel like I'm always trying to work on myself on. I, I don't like to admit when I don't know something, but it, it, actually, if you can ask for help from others, that's when you start getting collaboration and people bring their different skill sets together and really cool stuff results. Is there also a piece of it that requires uh, some courage? because you need to change. I mean, this a mentor of mine said to me once, you know, because I get this rap of, oh, you're always changing. You're going this way, you're going that way. And he was like, well, if the change is because you want something to be better, that's okay. You don't change for change sake, but most people don't want to change, you know, kind of change gears really quickly because they're afraid someone's going to say, no, 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 that's not, let's just stick to what we said we were doing. But doesn't innovation require that? I 100% agree with you, Jeannie. Uh, to, to, and it gets back to progress, right? We're not doing this for its own sake, but are we helping make progress for individuals? If the answer is yes, that's change we ought to adopt in a second and not be scared of it. Uh, and I also, you know, Adam Grant in his most recent book had this chapter about how great it is to be wrong because <laughs> it's a learning opportunity. Um, but Clay Christensen, had a sign out of his uh, office, um, a wooden sign that he had carved himself that said anomalies wanted. And what he wanted was people to come to him and say like, your theory doesn't explain this. And he'd be like, oh my God, you're right. What a cool opportunity to make the theory better. Because isn't the purpose, the purpose wasn't for Clay Christensen to be right. The purpose was to build something that was useful so we could innovate more. I agree. I agree a hundred percent with what Michael said and courage is courage is real. I just want to underscore that, that when you're um, you're trying to advance and be innovative and think outside the box or beyond the status quo, that sometimes can be a hard and lonely place. Mm. And um, because, you know, it's, it's easier 
to keep doing the same thing. <laughs> um, and in many cases, we're we're incented, right? Our systems are structured for us to continue to do the same thing. So it is really important to surround yourself. And this is why I love this, this ecosystem you're creating, <laughs> Janie, with this, you know, with, with this cohort um, to, to, you know, create like-minded individuals, right? Because it's really lonely and it's hard. Um, and sometimes you're very alone. So, you know, courage is, is um, I, I do want to underscore that. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that word. It's very important. And I think it's something we're going to be talking about later on in the accelerator. But when you, when the policy conditions are ripe, obviously it's a lot, not necessarily a lot easier, easier, but it's a, and a lot easier and a little bit more fruitful. But it's also good to try it if they're not ripe, because then you know where you have to push. Right. You know, you, you know, the buttons like, oh, wow, I can't do that because there's a contract that says that or there's a there's a rule or a regulation that says something. It's very I think I think making sure that we know what those things are is important. Well, and that's important, right, Jeannie, because all too often and Rick Hess has written a lot about this, right, that we just assume that something is blocking an innovation. And when we actually dig into it, there's nothing except ourselves blocking it. And so being specific, I think, and I, Jeannie, you and I have testified in a lot of states together uh, or, you know, uh, um, about innovation and education. And all the time we're talking to the entrepreneurs, we're like, what is the actual thing holding you back from doing that? Right. And it turns out it's actually not a thing in some cases. You can go ahead and go do that. Right. I think we lost Phyllis for a second. She'll be back. But Michael, let me take uh, advantage of the fact that um, I've got a couple of specific questions for each of you based on some things you've written. So um, you ended your book with this line. In this new system, their learning would not need to be confined by the four walls of a classroom. Love that. Schools should act as hubs to bring an array of people both directly connected to schools and not together around something larger than was designed to help all students make progress. What's an example of that from your research? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, so this is the idea, especially, frankly, as like education savings accounts and some of these mechanisms are taking off, that students ought to be able to plug in in a variety of places and learn, and that should be able to count, right? And and you were the one very early on that noted that in the federal uh, statutes, sometimes schools were defined by the boundaries of the brick and mortar walls and 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 basically the argument here is no learning occurs all over the place and we should be able to recognize that and and figure out ways to create coherence out of that for individuals uh, but make far more permeable boundaries behind b- between the institutions from which they are in fact learning and it in my simple minded definition of this I, you know, I, I imagine that ultimately, like schools refashion themselves as community centers where kids can go to like plug into community and networks and whatever else. But then they're going all over the place for the learning itself. They're going to the internship in the morning. They're taking an online course over here. They're doing a project over there. They're jumping into the library over there. They're, you know, they're, they're, um, at a micro school for another part. Like, and it's dynamic and it's, it's far more, uh, permeable again, for lack of a better word. And yeah, you got your team, you know, your crew right inside of you that is helping you make these experiences coherent and helping you figure out like, what do I want to be? What's my purpose? What, what are my passions? What am I going to build and lean into as we're doing that? Um, but, but that's sort of my simple minded 
thought genie of like what it looks like in the future is that we think of these school buildings much more as community centers or hubs, but mm-hmm. then they're launching points for all the learning that occurs. You know, it's such a great vision. So Phyllis, I want to ask you to comment on Michael's vision. I'm going to come to you about something you wrote. Um, so when I think about that, I'm like, yes, I wish I had that for my kids. And this is great. And yes, I know some of you guys are doing it out there. But then to think about the hurdle that folks have to go through to get there. So um, people go, well, where are they going to learn math? And how are you going to make sure they learn reading? And, and so what is the way? Like when you see schools come in and test and be a test bed at LEAP and work with a technology company, do you see people making jumps a lot quicker than they used to? And, and what do they have to do to kind of really understand that place-based learning? It doesn't yeah, have to be one place. Yeah, absolutely. I um, again, I, I just want to double click um, on everything Michael says because I my 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 goal in life at this point is to bring what he just described to life. Seriously, it is it is um, unconscionable that we are thinking about um, that we're not right putting all of our efforts to understand how to uh, connect our students to our broader learning ecosystem that is uh, transcending. Um, modalities of 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 online, virtual, in person, and everything in between. That's exactly how we're working. <laughs> that's exactly how we're engaging, yeah. right? And that's how that's how work is going to be. So we've got to think about how we're redesigning learning to prepare our students for this future, for this for how for, for the future of work, right? Um, so you know what I want to underscore is leap. A core part of our work, right, was um, connecting, curating, and connecting at technologies in schools. But the that was the back end. The mm-hmm. front end was all about adjusting the methodology of what learning design is in our schools. And they were based on four core principles: that the pedagogy of learning has to be designed around the needs, interests, and strengths of the students; that it has to be um, uh, owned and, and building the agency of every student that it has to be based on mastery, right? And, and, and um, experiences that of demonstration, and it has to transcend the building. It has to transcend time, space, and place. And that's the connected learning side right. of it. So in terms of your answer, we were able to move a number of schools, we worked about 180 of them, um, into more of a, you know, along the, the, that, 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 that paradigm to more of a, a connect, uh, to more of a um, mastery-based, um, experience to some degree, right? Not to the degree Michael's talking about, but to some degree. And I will tell you that one of our schools um, that expanded on this connected learning idea where they um, identified and had uh, uh, their students choose between 60 community-based type of projects where they could learn um, outside of the school. They could bring projects back in the school and align it with their curriculum. They were the top rated uh, elementary school in Chicago for two years in a row before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that future that Michael is talking about is exactly how learning is going to happen. It has to happen in that way. Um, when you mentioned how can it how can it work, right? It's got to align to policies that will enable the accreditation of outside learning mm-hmm. to count. <laughs> and it's everything that Michael talks about, about, you know, we got to blow up this Carnegie unit concept. Right. Um, and, and why we're still having this conversation in a post-COVID era is beyond, it's beyond the pill. 
So true. Oh my gosh. Um, let me, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm just struck before I go to this next question. When you say that again, such common sense, such clarity, we've seen it happen. Like a few years ago, we're walking around talking about this and it was in Lindsay unified and it was here and it was there and it was a bunch of places here, but in this, on the screens, but it, we didn't really quite understand why, like the general public writ large. Um, I don't know that I've heard any governor. We've been analyzing the governor candidates for next week. I don't know that I've heard any governor talk about that. They're still, they're, they're better than they used to, but it would be great if we actually had someone say, you know, Carnegie units out, competency in. Yeah. We're going to make this happen. So maybe that's our next quest for the next few years, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think the only way it's going to happen is if we connect, if we if we connect this to the urgent, urgent demand of the talent pipeline um, that's going to drive our economy. And I think we've got to we got to, you know, sew the thread between K-12 and workforce. Because, yeah, yeah. And, and, and because, it, it, you know, at this point, think about it, Janie, like, and again, I'm, I'm proud of it. And we all should be proud of it that, you know, our graduation rates, well, they're the highest they've ever been. Everybody's touting these increased graduation rates, but to what end? How many of our, especially black and brown children are, are, are getting into the labor market <laughs> in high growth jobs? And we're talking right. about equity, right? Equity is, is about wealth attainment, <laughs> right? If we are not positioning our young people to close the wealth gap, then I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure what we're talking about and what the purpose of K-12 is. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think, and I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this as it relates to um, connecting the urgent, you know, talent pipeline. When you look at a number of bills that have, you know, infrastructure bills, chips and others are requiring um, a, a build of a talent pipeline that most of our country doesn't have. So I really do believe that's the, that's the way we're going to be able to move policy in the direction Michael's talking about. Yeah. And just to double click quickly, Jeannie, on this. <clears throat> I think there's some promising things afoot in that education to workforce pipeline, right? Like, so Google certifications, Microsoft certifications, Salesforce, et cetera, like they are putting assessments behind actual skills and you can be any age and, and, and take courseware. You don't, you, you don't even need the courseware if you already know it. They are mastery-based certifications. You prove that you in fact can do it and then you, you have this certification with you. And that what what a great thing for starting to actually make that clear. What are we trying to close here? You can imagine that the older a kid gets in the K through 12, I'll put system in quotes, right? Um, that they should have more opportunities to start to branch in directly and actually show and earn these credentials themselves that have direct linkages to hiring and so forth, and frankly, into college and and, and the like. Now let's retrace all the way back. And I, I think we have to have some courage around building actual, it can be a few assessments, right? It doesn't have to be one way of assessing, but reading, yeah, like right. math, yeah. And we and there's some commonality that we need to agree upon and, and allow people to show what they know and so forth. The biggest exciting thing in this, frankly, I think, is that right now, a lot of parents that are choosing the schools that are represented here and elsewhere uh, and these education entrepreneurs, they're asking the question, how's my kid doing? And they know that the answer from traditional public system is not a real answer. Right. And so that actually, I think, creates some more entrepreneurship opportunities 
to create that sort of learner record, if you will, that is tied to mastery of actual demonstration. Maybe it's through Khan Academy, like schoolhouse.world. You go on there, you do a five minute little you know, mm-hmm. video of yourself solving problems and you get certified. Yeah, Michael actually has mastered this or the certification comes back from other people and they say like, keep working, buddy. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Right, right, exactly. So Phillips wrote a great article in Forbes called Leadership Begins with Student Interest and Empowerment. I'm just going to tell you all to read it and we'll make sure there's a link in the platform that we have. But you do talk about sort of the three uh, factors that help schools better respond to disruptors. Self-directed, forward-leaning orientation. You've talked about that. Healthy cultures, flexible systems. So both of you, what's your, what's your, actually, there's no hard, hard to have a favorite, but what's a great example? of all these things working together, a, a concrete example of an institution that you've studied, worked with, gone to, collaborated with? I really love, obviously, New Hampshire, who's ahead of, <laughs> you know, just way ahead of the game on competency-based learning um, and flexibility, you know, has this Learn Everywhere program um, that I think is fantastic. And it really leans into what Michael was talking about, where, you know, the, the, um, the state superintendent has now accredited outside learning experiences for students. And, and you know, he's he's kind of blown up the Carnegie unit that 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 the learning everywhere counts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for young people, um, you know, getting involved in you know robotics challenges or um engagement in, in um exper- learning experiences, the boys and girls clubs and other things, they they are getting credit for that. And I think that is huge. So it's about 280 hours of learning not about all that learning has to happen um, at a, you know, in a geographical place, you know, with, with, with a teacher per se. Right. Um, so I, I love that model and I, I wish were it across the country. <laughs> yeah. I don't, dis- I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of better examples. I can't. Um, so um, the, the, the two that, that I, I guess I'll say I'm intrigued and I'm curious to see how they fall into uh, policy more broadly uh, I'm really intrigued by the Mastery Transcript Consortium uh, and the work that they are doing with high schools and plugging that into colleges for acceptance. And basically the notion, you know, this is not new, portfolios, right, of work, but they are really tagging it to those competencies or standards or ma- and, and in a variety of ways so that, hey, if I want to geek out on jazz piano, right, and 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 demonstrate that, not chosen at random, right, I, I can represent myself at that. And by the way, we we tell teenagers all the time, I'm as guilty as it, as the next person, pick the college that's the best fit. Don't go by the rankings. Well, then you look at our, at our colleges and it's like an undifferentiated blob of colleges. How the heck do you figure out best fit against that? Oh, but wait, what if like, you know, again, the artist all of a sudden could match with RISD and the person who showed aptitude in entrepreneurship uh, match with Babson and the person in engineering could do Olin College or MIT or whatever. And we could disrupt, frankly, the SAT uh, college board sort of hold on on college leads uh, and do much more around the aptitudes and like who you are as an individual and start matching this around mastery of real skills and competencies and things of that nature. I think that could get very interesting over time very quickly. Uh, so it's something I'm, I'm super interested in. The only other one I'll say is from higher ed, Western Governors University, to yeah. me, remains the gold standard. Uh, of what this looks like. And they've done such a good job in terms of, you know, I love it. Like you can't complain that you didn't master something. 
because your teacher didn't like you because they're not the ones grading you. They've broken apart who is doing the grading and certifying of learning from the teacher who's supposed to be your coach and just like all, all behind you. And I think that's going to be an important design principle as we walk forward into this future is that the teachers are not, in fact, the graders. They are purely your teachers and your coaches supporting you. Uh, and that other humans are the ones that say, yeah, that, 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 that looks like mastery of that skill. So great. That's fantastic. I, lo I love the correlation and just putting all these things together, um, even in a couple more states would have huge, huge, huge changes, ramifications. Right? And, and look, look, the ESA landscape is the place where we can see the most forward progress, I think, against this ultimately, because those those families are demanding it and 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 the demand is unleashed in a really important way. So before we go to uh, our questions from the cohort, uh, let me ask you this, Michael, you've written about digital technology not being a silver bullet. Phyllis, I've heard you talk about it. You know, I know I you know I want to talk to people who are not in our world and I'll end up they'll say like so exactly what is this all about? I'm like, well, 21st century learning and yada, yada, yada. And I explained it what, in what I think is an articulate way. And they go, well, technology is not all like everything. I'm like, no, 21st century learning isn't necessarily technology, but that's how people equate it. So is technology a an aid? Is it a necessity? Like, where does it fit in the whole menu? I love the question. I'm super curious, Phyllis, what you're going to say. Um, <laughs> For, 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 from my perspective, uh, it's a tool. <laughs> it's awfully hard to imagine the personalization that we're talking about unless technology is a piece of that to, to, to do that. Technology is very broadly defined, by the way. It's not just digital technology. Like I go into my kid's Montessori school and they're using technology. It's manipulatives and things of that nature that are, 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 are really cool, by the way, that allow them to be in the driver's seat of their learning. And so that that that's I think the important thing is that learner-led uh, uh, piece of this that technology unleashes and creates these choices uh, 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 that that are just beyond our conception. And and my favorite story still on this uh, briefly is I was talking to a, a group of chief technology officers. I was doing a training a, a five week training course for them um, on 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 some stuff in their organizations and. Um, Somehow I sort of said, like, you know, the vision of chapter five and disrupting class just hasn't really come to fruition in terms of this network of learning experiences. And the guy looked at me and he was like, You're crazy. Every single high schooler learns through YouTube. They don't learn through their school. Like it's come exa it's exactly here, and you just don't recognize it. I was like, Oh, good point. Um, so you know, I think this stuff is already here. So that's the last part of the answer, which is I have come around to the fact that there is some necessity in it as well, because 90 plus percent of us live the majority of our lives in that digital future that that or, or that digital present that that Phyllis described earlier of permeable, you know, am I at home? Am I at work? Am I in person? Am I on a play? Like it, it we just don't think it's about all. these boundaries anymore. Yeah. And to live in that world as a contributing citizen, as a contributing worker, as an individual uh, who's part of it. I, <laughs> How can technology not be part of that? Right, exactly. Yeah, my my, I love your answer, Michael. And and my my hope is that you know in the next few years we won't be talking about ed tech <laughs> as a separate add-on thing. <laughs> it, it you know technology has to be integrated. It's a part of learning. 
right? I mean, who does that? Like every industry across our country, you're using technology. They don't say, oh, that's tech over there, or that's, you know, that, why, why are we thinking that way? It's insane. I mean, and so, so it's, it's a part of it. It's not all of it. Of course not. We have to have the human elements. I mean, we cannot remove that at all. It is a tool. We all have seen schools and, and have participated with schools that are doing a phenomenal job without technology per se. But there are two points here. We are not going to be able to scale solutions without tech. We're just not. <laughs> so, right. you know, we have these one-off silo, wonderful places we all can point right. to. But unless we figure out how to integrate technology in a real way, we are not going to get to the scale that we need. And um, as Michael said, we're not going to effectively prepare our young people for 21st century if technology is not integrated in their learning experiences so they can compete. It's just as simple as that. Fantastic. Okay, cohort 32, semis, who's got a question? Steve, I know you had a question about policy, but I kind of want to wait on the policy thing because we could be here forever and we've got some dedicated. So if we have time at the end, we're going to go there. But is there anybody want to take? Oh, there we go. All right. Hi there. Right. Good morning. Um, this has been super fascinating um, and um, it really aligns with what we do at Arizona Autism Charter School. From what you're saying, it sounds like definitely all kids would benefit from some school learning and then applying those skills in community-based settings to get ready for real jobs. I'm just wondering if in your research, you've found improvements in kids' soft skills. Phyllis, I know you have a, uh, you've written about this at Forbes, so, because I've quoted it, so. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, there, there, there is a balance, right, to be had. Right. This is not about, um, you know, my, my my perspective is very much that learning needs to be hybrid, very much as we are operating in a hybrid um, work, you know, context. And so, you know, the the, the aspect of um, preparing our students as we think about, you know, building their their confidence, um, their their um, identity. Right. And, and their social capital. I mean, this is part of it as well. Building their social networks and social capital is fundamental, right, for their, their ability to navigate the world. And you can't do all that via technology. Um, and so, again, I, I do think we've got to be thinking about more of a hybrid approach. So, I, you know, not in fact, I think there was some research out of Harvard that talked about, um, you know, one all in-person isn't the best and all, <laughs> all online is not the best, right? And so we really do need to think about a more integrated approach is what my answer is. Yeah, and my only, my only quick add would be as we think about the outcomes and what are those outcomes in, in, in the book I lay out that, yes, there's content knowledge, there's the skills, if you will, problem-solving, critical thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, habits of success, I think, are critical of that. You know, some people call them social emotional, some people call them character skills, some people call them uh, non-cog skills. They got all the uh, words, but what I'm talking about is like agency, executive function, curiosity, right? All, all these things that are very human uh, in, in in nature, how to work in a team and, and so forth. Um, and then real world experiences and social capital is my fourth piece. I think we have to be tying all of that in. And the more that these are integrated and we're attending to all of it, it's the best way to do it. Now, look, certain kids from certain families, they'll be getting that elsewhere. And so we can go super deep on one of them because that's where why they're coming to you from. Fine, we can modularize it or unbundle it. But a lot of kids, they need this deeply integrated uh, and it can't be left to chance on any of those four in my mind. 
David Lipkin, jump in. Thanks, David. Hi, thank you so much for the discussion. Near and dear to my heart, uh, here at Lift Learning, we have a deep conviction that uh, competency-based portfolio assessment is the collection device, and we need some scaffolding for that. So diverse forms of learning don't just happen at the end of the record, but are built in along the whole journey. At the level of adoption and readiness, how, how can we find those schools more proofs of concept um, to really get this to be the mainstream future of education? Yeah, I love the question. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give maybe a theoretical answer to it. And then Phyllis, you can go deep on maybe maybe some of the practical places. And I'll just sort of step into the Clay Christensen uh, giant shoes. He left all of us on this one, which is to say that the theory um, of disruptive innovation, which which I think is really systems change, like a, a new system of disruption things replaces the old, ultimately. Um, what it says is that all of those interlocking parts and components of that new system, they don't plug compatible with the old, ultimately. We're going to have to play with that a little bit in education because we have a full consumption system. It's not conducive to disruptive innovation in a pure play way, uh, the way it is in other markets. And, and we could geek out on that later uh, in a different strand. But the only point I'll make is rather than just trying to have the conversation constantly with the old compliance system, like fine, just we should be like you all on this Zoom. You you are building the new system, and you're building the components of the new system that are going to be plug compatible and so forth. And that that that's what I'm really interested in is how do you all like the expressed innovators get them on the same platforms and solutions that are walking toward this uh, future? Because it's going to be like I'm in Lexington, Massachusetts. You know. Uh, Lexington Public Schools has uh, mastery-based grading, but it ain't mastery-based learning. They're they're going to be the last one to like jump in on that uh, on, on that scheme because they have the most to lose from making the switch. So true. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to jump to Iman because I missed her before in the lineup. Thank you. Sorry. Um. So Iman here from Kind Academy. I really want to begin trying to figure out how to do this true mastery-based learning and showing families in the elementary level. Have you seen anything? I think David was saying like proof of concept. I wanna get with those people and figure out how to, cause right now we're doing technology, we use technology to kind of tick the boxes and to show families, this is the data, they're doing great, but we're out of the school building. We're literally in school two hours a day and then we're out for the rest of the day in our community. Yeah, I had a whole network of schools doing this. I mean, everything David described is exactly right. The, the protocols on, you know, releasing um, agency and building building that that confidence and um, you know and all all those things. I mean, COVID, you know, has has killed my model. It's very unfortunate. I will say this: our schools were a bit more resilient, right? Because because you know students were um, used to operating in a more personalized context and not having an adult standing over them telling them what to do every minute. <laughs> they were a bit more resilient, but. You know, a lot of this these skills have atrophied, you know, since COVID. So it's been a little tough. But I definitely have uh, models of, of and leaders who you know have done this and who you could talk to, who I'm sure would, would be you know willing to share their approach and how they're trying to to kind of get back <laughs> to where they were before the pandemic. I'll just quickly pile in, like at the elementary level. Um, I mean, Montessori schools to go to Italy, like have been yeah. doing this for you know uh, over a century. 
right? Like we, we, we have good examples. So then Acton Academy is a micro school that's sort of a modern version of, 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 of Montessori. They do it right. Um, it, you know, oh, there's 500 plus public Montessori schools. So we can point to that as well. Like this isn't just a private, uh, school phenomenon. Um, so I think there's a lot of examples uh, out there. Are they on consistent systems to measure mastery? Not that I've seen. Um, a lot of these are 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 bubble gumming and paper, you know, Google docking this uh, uh, together. There's systems. There's like jump rope. There's um, mastery uh, mastery track uh, is 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 a is a really good one. like. There's stuff that's out there, but it's not. It, we're we're not where we need to be in universal. Uh, nor, in my opinion, are we really ultimately where we need to be in terms of, again, someone who is not your teacher doing the actual assessment itself as part of that. I think that's such a great point because it reminds me of the phonics debate when we finally, finally got everyone to understand, actually, you have to teach decoding. We're going to do phonics. Every publisher in America slapped phonics on the front. I mean, I remember, I remember collecting these darn things. I want to use a, a worse word. They like. Phonics was on the front of all their books. There was no phonics in it. They just put font. Well, they had some, they showed blah, blah, blah for B, but it was really not that. And you actually took a set of research scientists to say, this is phonics, this isn't. And so it's almost like we have to have, we have to have these, you know, big gold stars. This is mastery. This is competency. This one isn't, this is a charade and be willing to say it. And so that's, again, the power. Of I 100% agree. And by the way, the number of schools that have changed grading systems and called that mastery-based right now, they ain't <laughs> doing anything mastery-based. We need to call that out very clearly. It, oh, is, it is a tragedy for those kids. Great. Thank you, Mon. Okay, Jeff Ummer Jackson. Thanks, Phyllis and Michael. Super inspiring. Um, I, you know, I really connect with uh, the um, ecosystem approach that, that you both uh, talked about. Um, and it's great to like, in this environment, to be with folks who think similarly, I would say, uh, would love to hear your experiences. We really truly believe that any paradigm shift, this is a paradigm shift, but any change also needs to be community driven. I wonder if you just have, you've had experiences with that, or if you could comment on it. Go ahead, Phyllis. We've got to bring the parents along the journey. Um, and we've got to help them understand, um, you know, how, you know, what, what the future of learning looks like and what their role has to be, et cetera. Um, I don't think we've done, we, the collective, we have done a great job organizing the community at large. You know, again, there's really no, unfortunately, incentive. No, you don't hear any of our government leaders or um, our, our district leaders, frankly, not many, there's some, certainly. But uh, the, 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 the larger ecosystem's not saying anything. I think they think the status quo is, we just gotta, we just gotta make the status quo work better, right? Is, is what we consistently hear. And Michael, what you've written about as well. Yeah, no, I, I, and I'll just double click on two things, which is, I think we backfire when we try to impose some of these innovations on the community without getting the buy-in on the why first. And it happens for two reasons. One the same one-size-fits-all approach that our schools have always taken, we assume that the same thing must be good for every single family as we make the switch and we just do it. And then the second thing is that um, we often jump to the what rather than spending time with the community on the why. 
why this doesn't make any sense. And two quick examples. One of the case studies in my book uh, has blown up in the last year and reversed progress. Um, but actually, when I dug into why, the story actually, I think, reinforces the main arguments in the book, which is that you have to be innovating with your community, not imposing something on them that you think is right, even if it violates their sense of the norms. We, and, and, that, and that very often might mean that like a school within a school, a micro school, a community, a class, a grade, as opposed to the entire school is going to be the way to innovate. And you'd never and, expect a district to do this, but Jeff, you can, where the key is actually educating parents. Okay, you just signed up for a school, or let's say you're in a traditional, not so traditional district where you're a little more innovative, and you go, you need to all come in because we've made some dramatic changes. You're not going to see the desks. You're not going to have the same teachers all the time. There have been changes. Trust us. You chose to come here or your kids are here. Give us a year or give us whatever. But no one does that. We just open up doors. We say, come on in. And then if there's changes, we assume, well, parents, what do they know anyway? Okay, Amr, Amr Kaipod. Uh, thank you, Jeannie, and thank you, Michael and Phyllis. Um, I want to build on the theme that hybrid forms of learning are more likely to be effective. Um, in, in our Kaipod locations, students do a lot of online curriculum, and you know they could spend two to three hours on an online curriculum and move twice as fast as someone who's spending seven hours in a traditional school. Uh, and it just leaves them so much more time to explore interests and make school feel engaging, solves the engagement problem. But you do have to look at school differently and teaching differently where curriculum can be delivered online, but is supported in person. Do you see any glimmers of that happening in the traditional system, or is it all at the edges um, where, um, you know, people like our, all of us are in right now? I've been to two Kaipods, Amar, <laughs> and I, I've seen it there. Uh, I don't know. The homeschool community has known this for decades, right? Uh, there, there, are, there are lots of schools where this is true, but they aren't the dominant uh, way of doing things still. And, and and I think that's still the exception, not the norm. I would agree. Yeah. Again, I had, ironically, in, in our um, portfolio, we had more traditional uh, public schools than, than charters, uh, which is ironic. Um, and, you know, embracing, you know, these approaches where, you know, students are learning, um, you know, part, it was integrated. Part of their learning is, is, is you know, using ed technologies. Uh, that we're helping to inform the educator, um, that we're enabling advancement of students who are ready to move on. In terms of it becoming like the adoption of the norm of, of a district, it, 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 it's, it's tough. I think it's really tough. Um, to It has been tough for us, obviously, to get scale. Thank you so much, Phyllis and Michael. Uh, this has been great. So I'm working on Edily Learning, which is kind of like a TikTok for learning. And I love the comment earlier about giving kids the tools to design their own scaffolding and self-design learning. And uh, in a world where more kids dream of being online influencers than being astronauts in America, how do you both think about students becoming uh, creators and teaching other students being participants rather than passengers and educating their peers? Uh, and have you seen sort of any interesting trends in this space? Great, thank you. Janelle. Yes, so um, Janelle Wood, Black Mothers Forum. We do this work with the family, do a lot of work in our micro schools with family. My question is this uh, for both of you. 
Um, how do we do a better job of supporting the family dynamics at home as we innovate during the day and our children are moving forward, but their families are may be having struggles coming along and so they're not providing that structure at home. How do we help the family transfer what we're doing during the day for their child to give them that structure and support at home to continue? So on, on the, uh, J- Jackson, your point about um students becoming creators. I think it's great. Um, two thoughts. One, they, they do need to learn knowledge to be able to do that. So start with the project, the question, and then connect it right to knowledge. And, and we keep that rigor. I also think part of the school's job, by the way, though, should also be helping them understand what career pathways actually look like and are out there. Because there's also a misnomer of how many positions there will be as YouTube creators making money. And we should not sell them a bill of goods. So, so I think you know, both of those things are awesome, but we got to, I think, put it in context and figure out where else talents can be. Uh, Janelle, I love, love, love your question. Um, two thoughts, and, and we can talk more about it, but one, organizations where an adjacent step in the value chain, so to speak, right, uh, are not good enough to get the results that you want. They have to integrate backward into those other steps of the value chain. And so, that means schools becoming more present for certain families to support them at the home life. When you look at some of the charters that have done the best over the years, they have actively gone more and more into the home life to support that. Uh, and I also think innovations like Springboard Collaborative of, of giving the parents, how do you read your kid? How do you ask questions and making that really deliberate, uh, really important. And then Joanne, just really quick, like I check out Summit Public Schools as a, as a rigorous way to think about the, the, they call it habits of success, but the social emotional learning um, uh, with the academics, uh, if you want an example. Well, Phyllis, Michael, I hope um, this made your day because it made ours and everybody on here um, because you did contribute so much in just a brief time. So thank you. We'll log your questions. We have this awesome platform, the Yas Prize Movement, and you guys can go put any questions you didn't get answered in there, and we'll figure out ways how to reconnect you uh, with our uh, fantastic uh, colleagues and speakers and experts today. Thanks again for coming, and see you guys all later today. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck to you Bye. all. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. So great. Thanks for joining us in Piazza. Come back throughout the month for more great conversations about advancing our human potential, how we educate our kids, acquire knowledge ourselves, and be better at work and building strong communities. You can find in Piazza wherever you get your podcasts and follow me at Jeannie Allen on Twitter and the podcast at in Piazza Pod. Thanks for listening. Ci vediamo.